You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 121 by Rudolf Steiner, 11 lectures entitled The Mission of Folk Souls, translated by Joanna Collis. This is Lecture 9, given in Christiania, Oslo, June 15, 1910. Those of you who wish to analyze yesterday's lecture philosophically might perhaps meet with difficulties, apparent difficulties, since you will have heard in the course of earlier talks on similar themes that the purpose of our entire post-Atlantean epoch and even of the later stages of Atlantean evolution was gradually to develop the human eye capital and bring it to ever greater consciousness. On those occasions, I indicated that the members of the ancient Indian culture, in that they had been able in Atlantis to perceive the spiritual world by means of the old clairvoyance still prevalent at that time, were in some respects the very first to be transported by this clairvoyant state directly into the physical world. The way in which they saw the physical world meant that a certain mood pervaded the whole first post-Atlantean cultural age namely the feeling that true reality was to be found in the spiritual world, while the world of phenomena was merely maya or illusion. Yesterday, however, I pointed out the actual situation, which was that the members of the ancient Indian culture underwent a rich soul development and that they had achieved this high level while their eye was more or less asleep that is, their eye only awoke once that mature development of soul had already been attained. What, then, has been the destiny of those Indian peoples meanwhile? For surely the Indian peoples must have experienced their entire soul development in a wholly different manner from the European peoples, especially the Germanic peoples, who were present with their eye while their capacities were gradually evolving and who looked on as the divine spiritual powers worked into their souls. You might possibly find it difficult to reconcile my statements in yesterday's lecture if you were to reflect on that lecture philosophically. Thus, for those who are not entirely objective, but rather want to analyze the lecture philosophically in this way, I must add something by way of explanation. The apparent contradiction will resolve itself at once if you recall that knowing the eye is entirely different from knowing any other object. If you know any other object or entity apart from the eye, the process of knowing actually has to do with two things, with the one who knows, who possesses the power of knowing, and with that which is known. In the formal act of knowing, it is immaterial whether that which is known is a human being, an animal, a tree, or a stone. But things are different in the case of the I. In that case, the knower and the known are one and the same. What is important in human evolution is that these two modes of knowing are distinct. 
those who had developed the mature Indian culture in the post-Atlantean age, developed the I subjectively, as the knower. And this subjective raising of the I within the soul forces may exist for a long time before the human being acquires the power to see the I objectively, as an entity. In contrast, the peoples of Europe developed the power to see the I objectively, comparatively early, while they were still served by the old clairvoyants. That is to say, in their clairvoyant field of vision they perceived the I as an entity among other entities. If you distinguish carefully between these modes of perception, your philosophical problems will be solved, as is the case in all matters of spiritual science, if you approach them in the right way. If you enjoy philosophical formulations, you could put it like this. The Indian culture exhibits a soul which reached the full flowering of the subjective eye long before the objective eye had been developed. The Germanic European peoples developed perception of the eye long before they became aware of the actual inner urge to strive toward the eye. Clairvoyantly, they saw the dawning of their eye in an imaginative picture. In the astral world around them, they had long seen the eye objectively among the other beings whom they perceived clairvoyantly. So you see, if we can approach this antithesis purely formally, we shall also comprehend where the soil of Europe in particular was destined to associate the human eye with other beings, angels and archangels, in the way I pointed out yesterday in relation to mythology. If you bear this in mind, you will realize that the European soil was conducive to relating the eye in a multiplicity of ways to the world perceptible to the senses, and that the eye, the fundamental core of the human being, is capable of entering into the most varied relationships with the external world. At first, before human beings were aware of their eye, before they perceived their eye, those relationships were determined for them by the higher beings, while they themselves were unable to have any influence on the matter. Their relationship to the external world was a purely instinctive one, the decisive factor in the development of the eye is that it progressively takes charge of its own relationship to the external world. In essence, it was the task of the European nations to determine in some way or other this relation of the eye to the whole world, and the guiding folk soul had, and still has, the task of showing European human beings how to bring their eye into relation with the external world, with other human beings, and with the world of spiritual beings. Thus, on the whole, it was within European culture that one first began to speak of the relationship of the human eye to the universe as a whole. Here lies the reason in cosmological terms for the great difference between the mythological atmosphere of ancient Indian culture and that of European culture. Over in the East, everything is impersonal, and above all one is required to adopt a passive attitude toward knowledge, to suppress the I in order to become merged in Brahma and to find Atma within oneself. 
In the East, the primary objective is to be without identity. Here in Europe, this human eye occupies a central place in life in accordance with its original innate tendencies and with its progressive development in the course of evolution. In Europe, therefore, particular attention is given to seeing everything in relation to the eye, to showing clairvoyantly the relationship of the eye to everything that has participated in it in the course of earthly existence. You all know that two opposing forces have participated in the development of the earthly human being who is destined gradually to acquire his eye. Ever since Lemurian times, the forces known to us as the forces of Lucifer have been putting their stamp on the human inner being, the astral body. And we know that these forces have sought to attack the human being by infiltrating his desires, impulses and passions. Two consequences have resulted for humanity. In the first place, human beings have acquired the ability to become free and independent beings who can be fired with enthusiasm for what they think, feel and will whereas formerly they were guided in their own affairs by divine spiritual powers. But on the other hand, they have had to put up with the possibility of falling into evil on account of their impulses, desires and passions. In this way, Lucifer is omnipresent in our earthly existence, finding his point of attack in the inner human being, in the place where human astral forces are at work and where the astral has become integrated with the eye, this too has become permeated by Lucifer's powers. Thus we see in Lucifer the power that has thrust human beings more deeply into material, sense-perceptible existence than would have been the case without that influence. We therefore owe to the Luciferic powers a most precious boon for humanity, namely freedom, and at the same time a dangerous legacy, the possibility of evil. We also know that because these powers of Lucifer intervened in the entire constitution of human nature, other powers were able to enter later on, powers that could not have entered if Lucifer had not first taken up his abode in the human organization. The human being would have a different outlook on the world, having fallen under the influence of Lucifer and his followers, if he had not been obliged to submit to the influence of another power after he had opened himself to the invasion by Lucifer. Araman approached from outside and insinuated himself into the great arena of the phenomenal world surrounding humanity. The influence of Araman is therefore a consequence of Lucifer's influence. Lucifer, as it were, takes possession of the human being from within, and as a result, the human being then also falls victim to Araman, who works from outside. The spiritual science of all ages, being familiar with the real facts, speaks both of Luciferic and Aramanic powers. Thus it may seem rather remarkable to you that in the views they express through their mythologies, Various peoples are not always aware to the same extent of Lucifer, on the one hand, and Araman on the other. For instance, there is no clear awareness of this in the religious conception built up out of the whole Semitic tradition as embodied in the Old Testament.
Here there is a degree of awareness only of Lucifer. You will find evidence of this in the Old Testament account of the serpent, which is nothing other than a picture of Lucifer. This shows that there was a clear realization that Lucifer played a part in evolution, a realization that is undeniably present in all traditions related to the Bible. Awareness of the Aramanic influence, however, is not present to the same extent. It is only to be found where spiritual science has been taught, and therefore the writers of the Gospels took account of this. The word daimon was borrowed from the Greek at the time when the Gospels were written, and you will find that where the Gospel of Mark refers to the temptation of Jesus, the word daimon is used. But when Araman is referred to, the word Satan is used. Who, nowadays, notices the important difference in the use of these terms in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew? Exoterically, these fine distinctions are not heeded at all. In external traditions, no notice is taken of this difference. This difference is very apparent in the contrast between the cultures of ancient India and ancient Persia, and it is strikingly illustrated at a certain moment in history. The Persians were less subject to the influence of Lucifer and more to that of Araman. It was in Persia in particular that human beings wrestled with the powers that give us an external false picture of the world and that surround us with the forces of darkness, namely, that which is concerned with our relation to the external world. Araman is named chiefly as an opponent of the good and the light. Why is this? It is because in the second post-Atlantean cultural age, human beings develop their perception of the external world. Remember that it was the task of Zoroaster to reveal the sun spirit, the spirit of light. To do this, he first had to show that this world is compounded of the spirit of light and the spirit of darkness, who clouds our knowledge of the external world. The Persians aimed, primarily, at the conquest of Araman, and strove to unite themselves with the spirits of light, the spirits who were the dominant powers in this field. The Persians were organized for activity in the external world. Hence, they had their Ahuras, or Azuras. On the other hand, it was dangerous for those who followed the Persian religion to enter the world that can be found by delving down into one's own inner being. Where the Luciferic powers are lurking, human beings will not allow themselves to become aware of the good powers, for they sense danger there. Looking outward, they imagine the Azuras of light to be in opposition to the Azuras of darkness. The ancient Indians were pursuing exactly the opposite course at that time. They were living in a period when they endeavored to reach the higher spheres by inner contemplation. They sought salvation by uniting themselves with the forces of inner vision. It was dangerous, they felt, to look out into the external world, where they would have to wrestle with Araman. They feared the external world and regarded it as dangerous whereas the Persians eschewed the devas, the Indians sought them and wanted to work in their domain. 
the Persians turned away and avoided the region where the battle against Lucifer had to be fought. Search as you may through the various mythologies and world conceptions, in none of them will you find such a clear and profound awareness of the fact that there are two influences at work in the human being as in Germanic Nordic mythology. Since they were still clairvoyant, Germanic Nordic peoples clearly saw those two powers as realities and placed themselves midway between them. They said to themselves, In the course of evolution, humanity has seen the advent of certain powers that penetrated into the inner being and worked upon the astral body. They operated from outside on the astral body. And because they were destined to develop the I, to achieve independence, they not only sensed the possibility of evil, but above all the aspiration toward freedom brought by those powers who were approaching the astral body in order to bring them freedom and independence. They sensed, one might say, the rebellious element manifesting in these forces. They felt the presence of the Luciferic element in the power that in the Germanic Nordic regions was still participating in the creation of the races by determining form and skin color of the human being and by making him an independent, active being in the world. With their clairvoyance, the Germanic Nordic peoples felt Lucifer to be primarily the power who makes human beings free and unwilling to submit passively to random external powers because they have their own solid core and are determined to act independently. Germanic Nordic human beings felt this Luciferic influence to be beneficial. But then they realized that something else stemmed from this influence as well. Lucifer concealed himself behind the figure of Loki, who had a remarkably changeable form. Since these peoples could perceive reality, they saw that thoughts of the freedom and independence of the human being could be traced to Loki. Through the old clairvoyance, however, they were also aware that another power is attributable to Loki, namely the power that drags the human being down through his desires and actions to a greater extent than would have been the case had he devoted himself only to Odin and the Aesir. Thus the peoples sensed the awful grandeur of their Germanic Nordic mythology. With passionate conviction, they sensed something that will only return gradually to human awareness through spiritual science. How, then, does the Luciferic influence achieve its effect? It penetrates into the astral body and from there works on all three members of the human being, not only the astral body, but also the etheric and physical bodies. Today, outside the Theosophical Society, it is only possible to give intimations about the Luciferic influence. It is an influence that makes itself felt in three different ways in the astral body, in the etheric body, and in the physical body of the human being. In the etheric body, it begets the urge to falsehood and lying. Lying and falsehood reach beyond the inner life of the human being. In the astral body, the vehicle 
of the inner life, the self is imbued by the Luciferic influence and takes the form of selfishness. The etheric body is imbued from within by the impulse to be untruthful and is thereby disposed to lying. In the physical body, the Luciferic influence begets sickness and death. This will be easily understood by those who were present at my last course of lectures. But I would like to emphasize here once again that the signs of sickness and death which manifest in the physical body are linked karmically with the Luciferic influence. To recapitulate briefly, Lucifer begets selfishness in the astral body, lying and falsehood in the etheric body, and sickness and death in the physical body. Of course, the materialists of today will be greatly surprised to learn that spiritual science attributes sickness and death to a Luciferic influence, but it is a matter of karma. Without the Luciferic influence, human beings would never have known sickness and death. The karmic effect of this influence is that humanity is more deeply immersed in the physical body and the penalty is sickness and death. We may say, then, that because the Luciferic influence entered into the human being, the physical, etheric, and astral bodies became prey to sickness and death, lying and falsehood and selfishness. And there is something I would like to point out in this connection. The materialistic sciences of today give the same explanation for death in animal and plant bodies as they do for death in the human being. Those who think materialistically in this way fail to realize that one external appearance may resemble another and yet may originate from totally different causes. Similar external appearances may arise from a variety of different causes. Thus the death of an animal does not arise from the same cause as death in a human being, although externally it may manifest in the same way. It would take too long to provide an epistemological proof of these things here. I simply want to state that what science describes as causality is very much skewed. We meet with mistakes such as these, which arise from muddled thinking at almost every turn. Imagine the case of a man who climbs onto a roof, falls off it, is mortally injured and found to be dead. What would be more natural than to say, quote, the man fell, was mortally injured, and died of his injuries? Close quote. Yet there might have been a totally different explanation. He might have had a stroke whilst on the roof and have fallen down already dead. The injuries might have been caused by the fall, so that externally the case might appear as described. Yet death would have resulted from an entirely different cause. This is a very crude example, but scientists are frequently guilty of this kind of mistake. The external facts may be identical, yet the inner causes are completely different. For now, let us simply accept the facts as posited by spiritual scientific research, namely, that the Luciferic influence begets selfishness in the astral body, lying and falsehood in the etheric body, and sickness and death in the physical body. What, then, would Germanic Nordic mythology have said in ascribing those threefold effects to Loki, to Lucifer? It 
had to say that Loki had three offspring. The first, the one who brings about selfishness, is the Midgard snake, through whom is expressed the influence of the Luciferic spirit on the astral body. The second is what interferes with knowledge and brings in falsehood. In human beings on the physical plane, this consists in those things of the mind which do not accord with the external world, which are untrue there. In Nordic human beings, who lived more on the astral plane, something that for us is an abstract lie would appear at once as an astral being and live as such upon the astral plane. The expression for everything that implied a darkening of the light of truth, false perspective, was some kind of animal being, and here in the north it was chiefly the Fenris wolf. This second animal is Loki's influence on the etheric body, which causes a person to have an inner urge toward self-deception, to think untruthfully about things. That is to say that the objects in the external world do not appear in their true perspective. In the old Germanic Nordic mythology, this was generally expressed in the form of a wolf. It is the astral form for lying and falsehood, which proceeds from inner urge. But here, where the human being relates to the external world, Lucifer encounters Araman, so that all fallacies that enter into his knowledge, even into his clairvoyant knowledge, all illusion and maya are the result of the inclination to falsehood. The Fenris wolf represents the configuration surrounding the human being that results from not seeing things in their true form. Whenever the ancient Nordic people experienced a darkening of external light, of the light of truth, they spoke of a wolf. This runs through the whole of Nordic consciousness, and you will find this image used in this sense even in relation to external facts. When ancient Nordic peoples wanted to explain what they saw during an eclipse of the sun, in the time of the old clairvoyance people of course saw very differently from today, when a telescope is used, they chose the image of a wolf pursuing the sun, causing an eclipse at the moment of reaching it. This agrees intimately with the facts. Such terminology belongs to the grandeur, indeed the awe-inspiring grandeur, of Nordic mythology. I can only give hints here, but if it were possible to speak for weeks on end about this Nordic mythology, you would see how this is universally applied in the representations of that mythology. This is because it arises from the old clairvoyance that is, however, everywhere influenced by the eye. Materialists of today will reply that this is pure superstition, that there is no wolf pursuing the sun. The old imaginative Nordic human being saw these facts in the forms of pictures, and I could perhaps enumerate many so-called scientific truths that contain more aramonic influence, a greater degree of error, than the corresponding astral perception that describes the wolf in pursuit of the sun. That an eclipse occurs because the moon interposes itself between the earth and the sun seems to an esotericist to betray a mind that is even more superstitious. From the external point of view, this explanation of the eclipse is perfectly correct, 
just as the case of the wolf is perfectly correct from the astral point of view. In fact, the astral view is more correct than the one you will find in modern textbooks, which is even more subject to error. If at some future time people will be prepared to accept the real facts instead of this external explanation, they will find that the Nordic myth is correct. I know that I am saying something ridiculously absurd in the eyes of our contemporaries, but I know too that in anthroposophical circles one is already sufficiently advanced to be in a position to show in which respects the physical view of the world is most influenced by maya that is, deception or illusion. Let us now turn to the influence of Loki on the physical body, where he induces sickness and death. His third offspring is Hel, who begets sickness and death. Thus the figures of Hel, the Fenris wolf, and the Midgard snake are wonderful representations of the influence of Loki, or Lucifer, in the form in which his influence was perceived, by the old dreamlike clairvoyance. If we were to follow up the whole history of Loki, we would everywhere find that these things shed light upon the matter, down to the smallest details. But we must clearly understand that what the clairvoyance sees are not allegorical or symbolic representations, but real beings. The Germanic Nordic people were not only aware of Loki, of the Luciferic influence, but also of the influence of Araman, which came from the opposite direction. And they knew more as well. Namely, that being attacked by the Aramanic influence was a consequence of the Loki influence. If you now look back to the time when the human being did not apprehend the world through sensory perception, but contemplated it with the old clairvoyance, you will find that this myth has been developed in response to that clairvoyance. What does the myth say? The influence of Loki had come upon human beings, and this is expressed in the activity of the Midgard snake, the Fenris wolf, and Hel. The effect was such that people's perception, their clear, luminous vision into the spiritual world, became dimmed, because the Luciferic influence increasingly asserted itself. At that time, when this view developed, human beings alternated between seeing in the spiritual world and living on the physical plane, just as now we alternate between waking and sleeping. When they gazed into the spiritual world, they looked into the world out of which they had been born. The essential point is that the myth had its source in the clairvoyant consciousness. Human consciousness, on the other hand, consisted in this alternation between insight into the spiritual world and losing such insight. When the dream consciousness prevailed, the people saw into the spiritual world. But in the state of daytime consciousness, they were blind to it. Thus they alternated between blindness to the spiritual world and being able to look into that world. Their consciousness alternated just as a certain cosmic being alternated between blind Hodur and clairvoyant Baldur, who could see into the spiritual world. Human beings were predisposed to receive Baldur's influence, and they would have developed in accordance with that influence if they had not been subject to Loki's influence. 
It was Loki who brought it about that the Hodur nature overcame the Baldur nature. This is expressed by Loki bringing the mistletoe, with which blind Hodur kills Baldur, the one who sees. Loki, therefore, is the destructive power, like Lucifer, who drove humanity into the arms of Araman. Insofar as human beings submit to blind Hodur, the old clairvoyant vision is extinguished, that is, the slaying of Baldur. This was felt by Nordic human beings as the gradual extinction of the Baldur power, the loss of vision into the spiritual world. Nordic people felt that by the death of Baldur, Loki had extinguished clairvoyance, and that henceforth they were powerless to revive this erstwhile clairvoyance. Thus one of the greatest historical events, the gradual loss of the old, unclouded knowledge, is expressed in the myth of Baldur, Hodur, and Loki. On the one hand, therefore, we have Loki with his tribe, the three beings, and on the other, the tragic slaying of Baldur. In this way, Nordic mythology reflects what we can derive from spiritual science, the twofold influence, the Luciferic and the Aramonic. It is this which spiritual science always seeks to present to you as an illustration of the clairvoyant knowledge of ancient times and as a development of the myth of the old clairvoyance that then gradually began to disappear. It would take us too far afield to pursue this subject further, but even in the broad outline I have presented, you can feel the awful grandeur of this myth, which is unsurpassed because no other mythology adheres so closely to the old clairvoyant condition. Greek mythology is only a memory of something experienced in former times, expressed in sculptural form. It no longer has that direct association with the facts, which one finds in Germanic Nordic mythology. Greek mythology is more sophisticated, more mature. The figures show more clearly defined and complete contours and therefore appear markedly sculptural, but they have lost the elementary simplicity of the earliest impressions. The old clairvoyance that had long since vanished in the rest of Europe still survived in the north. Only slowly, step by step, has the perspective of the human being become limited to the picture of the physical world alone. Thus, at the time when Christianity began to spread abroad, what is expressed in the Balder myth, in the death of Balder, had become true for the majority of human beings. Yet even then a few remained who were able to perceive directly what Nordic humanity experienced clairvoyantly. Thus, for a long time, the direct perception of the spiritual world still existed. And because it was still so elementary and sprang so directly from clairvoyant experience, there still survived, when Christianity began to spread abroad, this conscious awareness of the spiritual world, which was more developed in the Germanic Nordic peoples than in any other. Then they felt that their erstwhile experiences of their original spiritual home were vanishing. And these spiritual experiences were lost when the Nordic peoples received the consolations of Christianity. But Christianity did not offer them any direct vision. They had felt the fate of Baldur much too deeply 
to be able to console themselves for this loss by exchanging Balder for a god who had descended to the physical plane in order that human beings who could only perceive on the physical plane might also be allowed to rise to a consciousness of God. Unlike the peoples of the Near East, the northern peoples were unable to respond to the words, quote, change your disposition of mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, close quote. Over there, where Christ had appeared, there existed only long-lost memories of the fact that once upon a time there had been an old clairvoyance. In the east, the Kali Yuga, the dark age when human beings could no longer see into the spiritual world, had already lasted for three thousand years. But they always yearned for that world, and always told of a world that human beings had once been able to perceive spiritually, but that had now vanished from their sight. They had experienced the spiritual world in a much more distant past than had the peoples of the Nordic regions. So they only knew from memory that the spiritual world had once been within reach. Hence the peoples of the Near East could well understand the words, quote, change your disposition of mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, close quote. They could understand the words, quote, the kingdom of heaven has come close to you, even here on the physical plane. See the unique figure who will appear in the land of Palestine. See the Messiah within whom God is contained, through whom you will be able to find your relation to the divine, even though you cannot raise yourselves above the physical plane. Recognize that figure in Palestine. Know the figure of Christ. These are the profound words of John the Baptist. Nordic human beings had to feel this in a different way. For a much longer time span, they had experienced a great deal more than a mere memory of vision into the divine spiritual world. And so there arose in them a thought of far-reaching importance, namely that confinement within the outer physical plane, the darkening of spiritual sight, could only last for an intermediate period that this would be a period of probation for human beings who would have to discover what they could learn from the physical world, that they needed this transition and must therefore withdraw from the spiritual world and undergo the experience of the physical world as a necessary training, but that through this period of probation they would find their way back to the world whence they had come and Baldur's vision would once again fill their souls. In other words, the great truth that dawned during the course of the development of the Germanic Nordic peoples, namely that the world which had been lost to clairvoyant vision would again become visible, caused the sojourn on the physical plane to be seen as merely an intermediate period. The initiates taught the peoples of the north that a change was taking place in the divine spiritual world during the intermediate period when they could no longer see into the spiritual world, a change through which they would, in consequence, have a different view of this world. They explained this to the peoples somewhat as follows. Formerly you looked into the spiritual world, and there you saw Odin, the archangel of language, of the runes, of respiration, as well as Thor, the angel of the eye, capital. 
you were associated with them, and those who are sufficiently prepared will be able to enter the spiritual world again, but it will then look different. Other powers will have arrived there, and the spheres of power and the relationships of power of those old spiritual leaders of humanity will have changed. You will, it is true, see into that world, but you will find that it differs from what you have hitherto experienced. What people would then see, this the initiates described to them as a vision of the future, the vision that will one day appear when human beings are able to see into the spiritual world again, when they will see what has been the destiny of the old gods and how they have related to other powers. The initiates described the vision of the future that they had seen, that showed how the Luciferic influence will come into conflict with what emanates from the gods and how it will run its course. The initiates clothed their vision of the future in the image of Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods. We shall see once again that all the events which were portrayed as future events could not, even down to the smallest details, have been portrayed better or more aptly, nor in more fitting terminology than in the wonderful picture of the twilight of the gods. That is the esoteric background to the saga of the twilight of the gods. In what light, then, should the human being see himself? He should see himself as one who has received all that stems from earlier times in the origin and cause of his evolution. He should thoughtfully assimilate what he has received as a gift from Odin, while feeling that he himself has undergone the ensuing evolution. He should receive into himself the teaching implanted in him by Odin, who appeared to him as an archangel. He should make himself into the son of Odin. He should enter into the battle without delay. The initiate, the leader of the esoteric school, makes that clear, especially to the Nordic human being, by calling our attention to the divine spiritual being who appears so mysteriously, who in fact first plays a definite part in the twilight of the gods, because he overcomes even that power by which Odin is first overcome. Odin's avenger has a special role to play in the twilight of the gods. When we understand that role, we shall then perceive the wonderful connection between the native talents of the Germanic Nordic peoples and the conception we can have of the vision for the future. All this is expressed in a wonderful way, down to the smallest details, in the mighty vision of the twilight of the gods. The end of Lecture 9